Welcome to The Money Pot. I am Mickey Tasfai and we are here in The Money Pot studio at The Money 2020 show. Financial inclusion has long been a buzzword of the industry. The promise is that technology will make the services more accessible to those that haven't been able to afford or access financial services in the past. But how are we actually doing? I'm joined by my colleague, Rachel Morrissey. Hello. Hey, hey Rach. Are you having so much fun? So excited to I'm, be here. I know. This booth is like, this is kicker. I want this booth in my in our office in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and we're delighted to be joined by our guests, Delicia Reynolds-Hand. Hi, Delicia. Hi. Thanks for having me. She's from so the excited to be here. Consumer Reports. And Claire Vazador yeah. from the Blockchain Association. Hi there. Excited to be here. So... Let's start with the consumer report. How are we doing? So our answer to that is, how do we know? And so this is where Consumer Reports is really trying to enter the space and facilitate the ecosystem, meaning consumers, financial institutions, regulators, thought leaders. How do we actually know? Are we regularly examining how fintech is doing or should we leave it up to the Google Play Store or your app store? Um, for consumers to just browse and determine how those apps are, are doing. So we have developed a framework for examining financial products and inclusivity is one of the principles and standards that we're going to be examining. So let's talk about that. What is the framework? Like, Give us a, sen- a sense of what that framework is. Sure. So we're calling it, you know, <laughs> title in progress, the Fair Digital Finance um, framework. And that's one half looking at the regulatory baseline. So principles that we're all familiar with, such as privacy, transparency, security, um, safety rather. Um, But also how are they doing with respect to consumer outcomes um, like inclusivity, financial well-being, um, user-centeredness, you know, can a consumer actually get to a live human being on the phone and venturing into other spaces such as environmental social governance. And so what we're doing is evolving our traditional testing and ratings model into the digital space. We've already done that with um, digital um, platforms such as looking at um, Facebook and consumer experiences online. And now we're evolving that into the financial services space. Cool. So if you are looking at platforms so as a comparison, right? So because people are familiar with those, or at least generally. Um, so how, how are you ranking the platforms so that we can kind of get a sense of how you're going to look at the fintech apps and the financial services accessibilities? Like where, where, how are those, uh, like what's the checkpoint system? I've opened a consumer reports, you know, to check out a microwave and they're like, yes on this and no on this. And here's the model that you want based on what you like. Right. And I'm assuming this is kind of similar and that it is saying it's really good in this area. It's not so good in this area and kind of giving you a picture of, of what you're getting. Uh, and and what's what's really important to you? So, how, what are the what are the check marks? What are what are we looking at? Yeah, sure, great question. So we start with the principles, right, that I've just mentioned, and then we go further. We look at specific indicators. So let's tackle inclusivity since this is our focus. You know, um, we think that 
one of the indicators of inclusivity, for example, might be does it minimize barriers to access for um, traditionally underserved communities? Are, is a company using um, culturally relevant um, information um, about its products? Um, is a company uh, using uh, industry practices, approved industry practices to facilitate inclusion? So we've got a number of different indicators which tether back to the principle of inclusivity and the idea is we will be regularly reviewing then ranking and rating companies based on our review i mean it sounds excellent i think and it's an important thing as rachel knows i'm um i'm both keen on financial inclusion but also quite critical of the language around financial inclusion because it's become increasingly used as a way to purpose wash let's say without actually you know really doing the the difficult and challenging work of driving inclusion so within that context how are we doing um and maybe i can you know bring in um clev um to, to you know give us your thoughts on that yeah financial inclusion is a tricky thing right how are we defining it who's defining it So I like to look at it from the perspective of financial exclusion, right? Because that is the problem we're trying to solve for. So whatever we are, we aren't. Or whatever we're not, we are. (laughs) Exactly. Very Confucian way of uh, (laughs) getting knowledge down, right? And, And there's a misnomer about financial exclusion, right? There's a sense that it's really mostly black and brown people and poor or working class black and brown people that have been excluded But when you look at America and the 2%, it's really the 2% that have been included, right? Wealth has been localized to specific people. So we've had a large majority of our population that have have had to operate on alternative financial systems. We're here at Money20, fintechs payments. Fintechs, I believe, came about because they recognized that there were large segments of that population a long time ago that were operating outside of the traditional banking system. And a lot of them, because they were forced to. So I work in the crypto space, and the reason I came to crypto is because of decentralization. There are people who think that the great innovation that crypto brings to us is privacy. Yes, but it's really ownership, right? Is this diminish barriers to entry so that whether you're you know, in rural America, in an indigenous, commu- indigenous community or an urban community, and you have been locked out, you can participate. And I, you know, the reason, you know, the Blockchain Foundation is coordinating with, you know, Delicia and the and, and consumer reports is because we have to actually look at our financial system and how many people cannot participate based on laws that were created so that they cannot participate. And also redefine what consumer protection means, right? Because it sounds a lot like patriarchy, if you ask me, (laughs) right? And, and, And what it usually ends up doing is saying, those of you on this side, oh, you're poor, you don't have a lot of money, we're, we're going to protect you. Everybody on this side, we don't care about you. Do whatever you want. Break the system. Right? We have to flip that script. We have to empower those who have been locked out. And that means we have to empower them with the tools to build wealth. We have to understand that for them to build wealth, they have to take risks. 
but uh, okay, on, on that point though, I, what, one thing I had to ask you, right, is um, if we look at the US right now and we look at um, you know, investment in crypto from retail investors, right, there is a disproportionately high number of people from um, especially the black community who are exposed substantially to crypto holdings, right? Now, given what we've seen in the cryptocurrency markets over the past, let's say, just, just in this year alone, what, we, what then happens is those members of that community are at a significantly more or, or exposed to significantly more risks, right? So essentially... Well, that's the assumption, but that's actually not the truth. There are so many access points to cryptocurrencies. There are so many different types of cryptocurrencies. So when people see the breakdown of Celsius or Terra Luna, that is not where black and Latino people are in crypto. Those retail investors are the wealthy ones that nobody was worried about. Black and Latino people lead national adoption of cryptocurrency because we've been in this space for the last decade plus. I've been in this space for six years, and we've always looked at it not from a store value perspective, from an equity perspective. How do you actually educate and train and use to solve problems? So yes, the bear market right now is definitely affecting crypto, but if you invested in S&P, you know, Dow, you know, any traditional finance is breaking down. But I think what, and, I, and again, going back to Consumer Reports, why we need to actually look at this, do, look at this new way that people are defining or, or finding new metrics of wealth is because we don't have enough information. We're making a lot of assumptions. So when you look at crypto, where black and Latino communities are overexposed, it's Bitcoin, it's Ethereum, it's NFTs. It is these things that we know will recover, right? Because we're building products and services and creating a whole industry around them. But, but the risk is still there, and I'm not going to deny that they're there. But that's why I say we have to empower people so that they can make decisions instead of saying, oh, my God, you know, bear markets shouldn't, they shouldn't be exposed to bear markets. So that's really interesting. I mean, where do you, um, why do you think that the, these communities have kept to the safe side of crypto? I mean, if you're going to talk about that, I mean, that's, that's basically what, what the argument is, is that there's a risky side to crypto and then there's a safe side to crypto. I don't... I, or a safer. Well, I think it's the evolution of crypto, Right. Crypto's North Star is Bitcoin. It will always be Bitcoin. The, the, the less safe piece, right? When you look at, you know, Terra Luna, right? You know, stable coins make sense, but, you know, algorithmic stable coins, does that make sense, right? Who's going to say, let's go that much further? And, and those people are taking risks because they actually have the wealth to actually take the risk, right? So when you look at, you know, in black Latino communities, even Asian communities, right? We're not taking the less riskier piece. We're looking at the tenets of crypto. We're looking back at that white paper that Bitcoin is supposed to create a, a, a cashless payment system. That this is about empowerment. As you move to these other metrics, you know, these, uh, the evolution of crypto leaves people behind, in my opinion. Right? When you, but you look at some of these key... Ethereum, we're building a Web3 ecosystem where creators and everyone can participate, right? Bitcoin is a store of value that anyone can actually live. So, so what's, what's safe, what's risky? We have to assess. We need partners like Consumer Reports to make sure we're doing that. But we also have to realize that everyone who's been locked out, different groups that have been locked, locked, locked out, 
their experience with money is different, right? How they engage with money is different, right? So we can't have a cookie-cutter approach, and we have to make sure that people can participate and they can define that participation. This is interesting because we're talking about crypto at this, but we're also talking about the general fintech uh, world, the, the the idea of where fintech is going. And there have been, there have been, there has been quite a bit of adoption of fintech apps in, in many different communities. We've seen that it has made a difference in a lot of these communities. I mean, there's been research that has shown this. Yeah. So, and we can't, if like you said, we can't take a one size fits all. But I mean, one of the tricks of of, of creating a, a list like Consumer Reports is doing is to say, well, we have a, a standard or, or, or a, 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 an approach that this size does fit best for most, right? So how, how do you, how are you, is Consumer Reports looking at crypto? Are they also including crypto as part of this fintech um, assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't have the capacity to assess all the space, but um, we are trying to look first at the places where there potentially is a perception of more risk. Um, I would step back and say all finance is inherently risky, right? And to Clev's point, um, particularly with respect to black and brown communities, we've always been told where to go, how to go, who you can work through. And on the one hand, while many fintech companies, um, in my view, have taken up the the banner of inclusion, financial well-being, financial health, they're promising the world to many confu- many communities. And so it's why this work is, is so important, because we want to make sure that access actually, more access actually translate to inclusion, but it also translates to safety. It also translates not in a um, paternalistic way to meaningful, tangible, longer term um, paths to wealth creation. Um, It is astounding that, you know, despite all of the consumer protection laws and policy which have passed, you still have credit deserts, you still have communities that are not sufficiently met. You have seen over the past few years um, just billions of dollars, name all of the, the nine largest banks. They have investments that are focused on racial equity, inclusion. So, so how are these initiatives doing? Um, again, going back to the, to the point. Um, and then it's about putting the information out there, but also making sure that it's accessible uh, to consumers. 20 years of research, consumers don't actually shop for financial services. So we're trying to make sure as well that we integrate this into um, consumer experiences as they go through the shopping experience. And if I can add to that, I do think that a great example to crystallize this for people is the PPP loan program, the payroll protection loan program during COVID, right? Yeah. That was supposed to actually primarily be for e-commerce businesses, independent contractors, minority businesses. But we know the data shows that it primarily went to hedge funds and wealthy companies. Because we may have said this, but we didn't change the, the dynamics for banks. And when I give the SBA, the Small Business Administration, credit because they actually provided licenses to fintechs to be able to administer some of these loans, right? And that was an innovation. That was like, why why didn't you do that before? 
but those same restrictions still apply to the fintechs, right? So you gave fintechs the capacity to reach to entrepreneurs, reach to these independent contractors, but they still have to conform to the same, to the same rules as traditional banks. So you created an environment where even fintechs could not even go far enough because you're still operating within the same system. But I think that's a really interesting point, and I, that does make me think whether or not there are two different types of conversations going on, right? So the question around the legal side of it makes a lot of sense, and you know there is a problem in terms of how the legal system or, or the, the the regulations that we um, you know are around exclude certain groups of people. But the point around the crypto side, right? That seems very different to me because I think if we do think that there is an issue with an exclusion in terms of a regulatory side, surely the solution is to fix that because part of it, and you know, Delicia, you made the point that all finance is a level of risk, absolutely, but not all risk is the same either, right? So if you have um, you know, a certain amount of money in your checking account, you've got insurance, you've got protection, right? If, you, if I hold a set amount of money in my crypto wallet, I don't have that. So not everything is necessarily of the same type of risk. So I, I wonder, should we not be doing a lot more to think about that question of risk when it comes to crypto? Because the exposure of risk, because you have access, it doesn't actually mean things are just going to be better, right? Does that... Do you no, follow I, my thought? I agree, but I think the the alternative is are we saying that because people have been locked out, they should be denied access to high net worth? Because because risk if, if if risk is inherent to being an investor, right, to participate in the traditional financial system, there is no way to actually create a scap that so we're, we're telling people who have been locked out that the status quo is the best place for you to be and that's where you're safe. And what what the what the masses have been saying is no. That's why you see Black and Latino communities lead national adoption of cryptocurrency. That's why you've seen even fintechs, right? The biggest consumers of fintechs are women, people of color, because these people have actually been looking for solutions. And so therefore, we have to actually we can't we can't pretend because I think one of the reasons Delicia and I thought that this was important is because. What we're seeing is a shift in our financial system, right? The, the, that accredited investor, institutional investors, they are not the, they're the majority. Robinhood proved that. Cash App proved that. That we have now new retail investors who do not want a brokerage account, who do not want a wealth manager. Even if they make millions, they actually want to look to alternatives. So... In regulation, you know, technology may not solve problems, but neither has government. We've been trying to solve this financial exclusion problem for almost 100 years. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just more on the risk. What's more risky? Somebody who's paid a mortgage for what they thought was a mortgage. Um, personal story here. 45 years, um, my aunt, um, we, I'm an immigrant to this country, so my aunt migrated early 70s, Co-op City, New York, bought into, thought she bought into Co-op City, New York. 45 years of mortgage payments and utility payments, maintenance fees, renovations. Uh, she passed early in the pandemic, and um, her family thought that they had a tangible leave behind, that they had gotten into the ground floor of 
the most valuable kind of investment um, that is connected to the American dream, housing, affordable housing, home ownership. Turns out her family only had the right to rent. Not even that, the right to be first in line or at the front of the line. And so I think it's, it's really important to not treat crypto as a red herring and to say, well, black and brown people, you need to be protected from this space. You actually need to examine the space all across the spectrum um, of finance and then rack and stack. How well are people actually doing? What are the outcomes being delivered? You can't drive a car off a parking lot if it hasn't passed basic safety and security um, tests. Who has road tested? Who is road testing digital finance? And it shouldn't matter if it's crypto or should, or if it's buy now, pay later, or if it's um, your basic banking app or your payments app in your phone. Um, and from a black and brown perspective, we're tired of being told this is too risky for you. You, you can't invest. Um, we need more than just the regulatory structures because frankly, technology has evolved beyond the considerations that our regulatory structures um, can fast enough catch up with. By the time the regulators figure out what they want to do and the paths they want to go on, technology is different. You have new business models. Um, for example, um, take it out of the crypto context. If you look at buy now, pay later, that business model has changed over the last 18 months. Um, what, are regu- what have regulators do- done about buy now, pay later other than signal um, guidance that's coming, rulemaking that's coming? In the meanwhile, consumers are consuming. They're leveraging buy now, pay later. Black people are six times more likely, based on our own survey reports, for example, to use buy now, pay later loans. Um, And they're more likely to have four plus buy now, pay later loans, um, which we know will lead to negative outcomes for consumers. So what we're trying to do is fill the gaps and, and actually sort of hold and test these products um, so that consumers, but also others in the space, company truly, companies truly have to compete for a consumer's business. Right now, they don't. They're just out there. Consumers encounter them however they do. Um, and there are no clear rules or roadmaps for consumers to really discern what's helpful, what's harmful or not. And this is where we're hoping to make some, some impact. I love Delicia's, you know, example of the car, right? Because for government, consumer protection means we love that you can now buy a car but keep it in the garage because the minute you drive it, you could die, right? So therefore, you can't do it. So, so you know, we can't allow that to be the rabbit hole. But you're absolutely right. We have to lean in in this risk conversation, right? We know how to mitigate risk. Financial literacy, making resources available, teaching people about bear markets, teaching people how to take calculated risks, right? So we can't, we can't pretend if we don't have the conversation, right? Financial literacy is something we've realized that people need regardless of race or socioeconomic status. There are high school students right now being taught how to write a check who will never own a checkbook, Right? But we're still not telling people about digital assets and fintechs and how to evaluate those. Yes, I mean, that's a really great point in terms of you know, the, the education piece, especially. Um, folks, we have reached the end of our recording, but I sense we could uh, go on for hours and um, you know, still continue. 
Um, but thank you to, uh, to both of our guests. Thank you to Delicia from the Consumer Report. Glad to be here. And thank you to Clev from the Blockchain, Blockchain Foundation. Blockchain Foundation. Thank you both for joining us. And thank you to all of you for listening 